Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all the moms among us as we now come to God's Word. Would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, make us more and more like you in every way. Do this. Conform us to the image of your Son. Sanctify us by your word for our everlasting joy, for your glory, and for the good of the nations. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our world this morning has a shortage of hope. You only have to look at the news for a mere second to recognize that there is much hopelessness at work in our world. This hopelessness has descended on many of us like a storm cloud that will not lift. This is a season where our trials have come into focus in a greater way. We're facing a pandemic and continued polarization. We are lamenting injustices and grappling with isolation. We are experiencing fear and frustration, plagued with sleeplessness and sorrow, seeing anguish and animosity impact us and those around us. And though we're facing very different circumstances than what Peter's audience was facing when he wrote this letter, we can get a little bit of the sense of the confusion and the discouragement and the tribulation that Peter's readers are facing. In our series thus far, Peter, in these first 12 verses of 1 Peter 1, has reminded them of their identity. You are elect exiles. You've been born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Look at the privilege you have to look into all of these things. Even in trials, you can rejoice. And you can almost hear Peter's audience say, we, we get that, we get that, Peter. But what hope do we have right now? We know that we have a future glory. We know we have a future hope that's coming when Jesus comes back. But what hope do we have right now? And you can almost see Peter's anticipation of this question. We know we have a future hope of glory But in the midst of our current trials and suffering, what hope do we have right now, Peter? And so Peter shifts here in verse 13 from going from what God has done in the new birth, born again, elect exiles. You are God's children, sprinkled with his blood, obedience to Jesus Christ. All of those realities, he's saying, now, therefore... This is how we ought to live. So he goes from giving no commands to now giving five in chapter one, verse 13, all the way to chapter two, verse three. And this morning, we're gonna look at the first two of these commands that Peter gives. And Peter's main point in our passage this morning is that believers are to live to reflect their heavenly hope and their true identity. Believers are to live to reflect that heavenly hope and your true identity. 
that the promise of a heavenly hope informs and shapes our present thoughts and actions right now. Faith in Christ isn't about insurance for the future, but it's a transformative power for the present. Faith in Christ is not just about insurance for the future, but a transformative power at work in us for the present, how we live right now. And so our plan this morning is to look at these two main commands. We see the first in verse 13, which I'm calling a transformative power of hope, and then the second in verses 14 to 16, which I'm calling a transformative power of holiness. So look with me now at verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First, notice with me the therefore. Peter's indicating this shift from talking about what Christ has done in these first 12 verses to now turning to how we are to live. He goes from recounting all of God's glorious work to now exhorting his readers how to live in light of these truths. God's commands are rooted in our changed identity as his children. We don't live, we don't obey in order to be God's children, but we become God's children and now get to live out of that new identity. In this command we see, is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to notice is that he calls us to set our hope fully. This hope is not a passive feeling, but a response to the sovereign work of God. It's not just a passive feeling, I hope I feel better, but rather it's a setting of the mind, setting your hope on the grace that is to be revealed, on future grace that is coming. It comes from recounting the grace of God. Therefore, we can set our hope on all the things that have already been said. You've been born again. You have an inheritance. You have hope. You can rejoice in suffering. So we respond to God's grace in our lives by hoping in it, trusting in it, putting our faith in Him, setting our hope on the grace that will be brought. Now, Peter uses hope and faith almost interchangeably throughout his letter. Faith is trusting God to do what He says He'll do, and hope is very similar. And we see that in actually 1 Peter 3.15. So flip over there, 1 Peter 3.15, and it says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we are to be prepared to respond to those who ask about what hope do you have at work in you? Where is your hope? And how would we then describe that? Well, it's what we have put our trust in. It's where we have put our faith. It's in Jesus Christ. So, our hope, we are to set our hope on Christ. We are to trust Him more. Now, He gives us two ways for us to set our hope 
in this verse. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So now look with me first at preparing your minds for action. If you'll notice in your Bible, if you're reading the ESV, you might have a subscript that says, it can be translated, girding up the loins of your mind. And so the image that it's painting for us is in first century Jewish men are wearing long flowing robes, and this would be nearly impossible, very difficult to run or sprint or do any serious work. And so what they did was pull that fabric through the legs and tuck it into their belt, wrap it around so that they could run and sprint without tripping and falling. And so the modern equivalent would be, let's roll up our shirt sleeves, let's put on our work clothes, let's get ready to do serious work and labor. And so when he says preparing your minds for action, he's telling us that setting our hope on the grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ isn't this passive activity, but it's getting ready to do serious work and labor in thinking and pondering and meditating upon all that Christ has done. Hope is not passive, waiting around to feel differently, but it's active work to engage the mind and heart with spiritual truth. One illustration of this might be gardening. I know many of us are preparing our vegetable gardens. And what do you have to do to have a garden that has big juicy tomatoes and zucchini and herbs and whatever else you grow? Well, you have to dig and toil and and plant and till the ground. It takes work. Same thing with hope. Hope does not happen haphazardly, but as we proactively ponder the privileges of being God's children. When we ponder proactively the privilege that we have as God's children, when we commit 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, to memory and meditate on these things, it becomes like a lozenge in our mouth that provides us ongoing source of sweetness, If we go back to this garden metaphor, our minds are like that garden. And if we don't pull out the weeds of sin and Satan and the lies of the world at the very roots and go in and plant good seed, we will not bear good fruit. And so there is this sense in which Peter is saying, all the hope that you've seen, all the glories that you've seen in these first 12 verses— Don't just let that passively go by. Don't let it just sail down the stream without taking hold of it. you got to set your mind on these things. Prepare your minds for action. Ponder the glories of Christ. And so this morning, for some of us who are feeling hopeless, full of sorrow and sadness, searching for solutions for your despondency, let me call you to ponder the glories of Christ. Don't let the promises of 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, just become something in the rear view mirror, but take hold of them. Bring them from the background into the foreground of your mind so that you meditate on these realities. Do whatever you need to do to gird up the loins of your mind in order to take hold of God's promises. This is beautifully illustrated in Lamentations 3, actually. Many of you know verses 22 and 23, which reads, 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, that is good news. That is a truth that we can hold on to. But what does the author of Lamentations say immediately before that and immediately after that? Just because those things are true don't give us hope unless we remember them and meditate upon them. That's why he says this in verse 21. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord and therefore I will have hope. Or in verse 24, he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. So when we call to mind God's character, his accomplishments, and his sovereign power, and then we preach those truths to ourselves, then we can remember and meditate and have hope because of what Christ has done. He says, my soul says this to myself. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. He's preaching these truths about God's character in order to exhort himself to remember it and to call it to mind. Now, the second way Peter calls us, calls his audience to set their hope is with sober-mindedness. This is a direct contrast with drunkenness, both literal and metaphorical, I think. It says, don't drown your sorrows and fears and anxieties in alcohol or in any other thing that would dull your senses to the glories of Christ and to the promises of God, to this future grace that we have in Jesus. The call is not just against drunkenness, but to abandon and remove the things from our lives that dull our spiritual senses, the things that diminish our love for God, the things that dull us to his glory, that minimizes God's power and perfection. There are thousands of morally neutral distractions that are vying for your attention right now. And we have to be sober-minded, prepared for action to set our mind on this future hope on this grace that is to be revealed. C.H. Spurgeon illustrated this sober-mindedness in this way in one of his sermons. He says, one day many years ago back, a thick darkness came over the United States. Now and then in London, we have dreadfully dark days for which we can scarcely account, but this was quite a new experience for New Englanders and caused a terrible sensation. So exceedingly black was it that the barn door fowls went to roost in the middle of the day. The darkness grew worse and the people trembled in their houses, declaring that the end of the world was coming. They were all excited and alarmed. One of the houses of the legislature adjourned under the belief that the day of judgment was come. The other house was sitting and the blackness was so intense that everyone was awed. A motion was made that they should break up, as the end of the world had certainly arrived. Colonel Davenport objected, saying, The judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjourning. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Spurgeon concludes, It is dark, but whatever is going to happen... 
or whatever is not going to happen, let us be found girded, sober, and hopeful. In these dark political times, these dark religious times, I call for candles, for we mean to go on working. Very similarly, this morning, whatever you may be facing or fearing, we are to be found faithful. Set your hope on Christ. Prepare your mind for action. We are to be sober-minded because the Lord Jesus is coming back and we can set our hope on him. It's not just insurance for the future, but a transformative power at work in us right now. I've noticed that the more I read the news, the more frustrated and anxious and distracted I get. We can let our hopes rise and fall with every tweet, with every news story, with every Tribune article, with every update from the governor, or we can try to drown out our fears and our anxieties with whatever it is, entertainment, alcohol. Instead, we are to look to the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to leave the junk food of the world in order to feast on the promises of God. So now we turn to our second command. Look with me at verses 14 to 16. He's just given us instructions to set our hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now he says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look now with me at how Peter begins in verse 14. He says, as obedient children. He is reinforcing what we already saw in verse 2 of chapter 1, that we're set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. The command for holiness follows our identity as obedient children. The imperatives come after the indicatives of the Christian life. Because you're children of the Most High God, you can now live in such a way that you reflect him that you're holy, that you look like him. The call to holiness is not a burdensome command, but it's a call to be who we truly are. We're to increasingly resemble our heavenly father. We're part of his family. Jesus is our good older brother, our perfect older brother. God the father is our good heavenly father, and we are increasingly, as his children, to look more and more like him. Have you ever noticed that those of the same household often have similar mannerisms or similar humor or sometimes even a distinct smell? I remember once there was a wonderful family that shared a couple of bags of hand-me-down clothes. And when one of my children put on some of those clothes, I, I came up near them and gave them a hug. And I said, oh, you smell like that family. These were clean clothes, but it just had their distinct smell. And in that same way, Peter is saying, you are to resemble your father in heaven. You're not only to look more like him and to love more like him and to act more like him, but you're even to carry his aroma wherever you go because we are called to be holy as the Lord Jesus Christ is holy, as the Father is holy. This is contrasted 
in verse 14 with our former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In essence, don't live the way that you no longer truly are. Don't live in the former ways of life. We see this later on in 1 Peter, like in chapter 4, verse 3. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You don't live that way anymore because that's no longer who you are. You're no longer children of the world, but you're obedient children of the Most High God. And so consider for a moment with me how hope and holiness hang together. I don't want these to be just two separate commands that we see. Okay, I'm supposed to set my hope on the grace that is to come, and then I'm supposed to be holy and look more and more like Jesus. But if we think about trials and suffering that come into our lives, it loosens our grip on all of these lesser hopes that do not ultimately satisfy and brings into focus that our hope is to be on God alone, that we've been born again to a living hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, defiled and unfading. We're to set our minds and hearts upon these things. And as we ponder God's glory and his glorious works on our behalf more and more and more, what happens to us? We look more like Jesus. We become more holy. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts, but it's behold what is truly valuable. Look upon all that is beautiful and become more beautiful like it. That's how hope and holiness are hanging together in this passage. Like 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the best summary of holiness I see. Beholding the glory of the Lord so that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Peter, now in verse 16, he says, well, look at 15. He says, but he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Have that family resemblance. Look like your father who is in heaven. And then in verse 16, he says, since, here's a ground, evidence, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. These are words cited most likely from Leviticus. And they show up throughout Leviticus. You could say perhaps chapter 11 or 19, chapter 19, verse 2, or chapter 20, verse 6, or 20, verse 26. But the point of it is that God's people are to reflect God's character. Holiness is befitting and appropriate for God's people. Our identity as God's people affects all of life. But I don't want us to miss this, so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Leviticus. Look at Leviticus chapter 19. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll kind of survey the rest of the chapter very quickly. Chapter 19 of Leviticus, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And then verse 3, he says, Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. Gives them a command. Well, why? I am the Lord your God. Now in verse 4, gives them another command. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. Why? I 
am the Lord your God. This is repeated again and again in Leviticus. God's people are to have their lives radically transformed because of their new identity and allegiance to God. They are God's people, and God's people look different. They live differently. Look with me actually at verse 9 and 10. I'm not going to read it, but Leviticus 9 and 10, I'm going to summarize it. God's people are to reap their fields in such a way that they care for the poor and sojourner. Why? At the end of it, it says, I am the Lord your God. Now, verses 11 and 12, God's people are not to steal or to lie. Why? Because I am the Lord. Verses 13 and 14, God's people are not to oppress their neighbors, the laborer, or mistreat the deaf or the blind. Why? Because I am the Lord. 15 and 16, God's people are not to be unjust or to discriminate against the poor. Why? Because I am the Lord. 17 and 18, God's people are not to hate their brother or seek out vengeance. Why? Because I am the Lord. And it goes on and on and on. How to treat your daughters, how to honor the elderly, how to treat strangers and sojourners, how to be just in your business dealings. All of it is concluded with I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. What's the point there? The point is that your identity as God's people radically transforms the way in which we live. Your allegiance to Jesus transforms what you do, how you live, what you pursue, what we delight in, every single aspect of our lives. There is no aspect of our lives that does not come under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be holy. We're to live differently. We're to treat others differently. We're to love differently. We're to advocate for justice differently than the world does it because of who we are. Our identity in Christ, because God is holy and calls us to be holy, transforms everything. Like for moms this morning on Mother's Day, You don't have a long list of all the things you need to do in order to measure up to be the best mom possible. All you need to do is submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember that you are his child, beloved, rescued, ransomed, called his own, and then now let that reality trickle down into every crevice of your life and reflect God's goodness in all that you do. Being a child of God changes everything. Being a child of God changes everything about our lives. Faith in Christ isn't just insurance for the future, but it's a transformative power for us right now. Jesus' disciples, in all the ways that we live, reflect the values of the kingdom. And that's not just sort of us in our prayer closets hidden away from the world, but it flows out into everything we do. If you read the commands of Leviticus, it's how you treat the sojourner, the poor, the deaf, the blind. And today, as we think about our world, it influences how we think about the injustice of racism, the loss of lives to COVID-19. We don't just say, well, they're just old people. when we think about injustice, when we think about senseless murders, both inside the womb and outside of it. 
Those realities grieve us and we lament them because we are God's people. I am the Lord your God, therefore have a heart that is reflected. Have your actions be reflect, reflect that of God's kingdom. We are to live justly, to love our neighbors, to consider the marginalized, the poor, the sojourner, the blind, the deaf, the powerless. Why? Because we're God's people. That's what we're called to. Our allegiance is not to the left or to the right, but it's to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Let's be so heavenly minded that we are of exceptional and great earthly good. That's what he has in mind. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ and be holy like your Father in heaven is holy so that it influences how you live, not just so that you float up in the clouds, but as we're transformed to look more and more like Jesus, we will live differently in this world. We will think about things not just because they're politically correct or incorrect, but we'll speak the full counsel of God because God demands it of his people that we will reflect his values in all that we do. So, we have a glorious, glorious hope. We have good news as believers. We've been born again to a living hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And as we ponder the hope of the grace that will be brought, It dislodges all of these lesser hopes that we've put our hope into. It will unearth the idols of comfort and security so that we will look more and more like Jesus. It is a beautiful thing to encounter someone that really looks like Christ. You think, wow, look at that love. Look at that gentleness. Look at that faith. Look at that joy even in the midst of trial. And if we are God's children this morning, that is what he's doing in and through us right now. In all of our sermons in 1 Peter, in this sermon this morning, he's showing us Jesus. He's showing us the beauties and the glories of the cross and the magnificence of Christ so that we would say, I want that. I want to become like that. I want to look like that more and more and that we might become more and more holy. This morning, if you're low on hope and have a surplus of worry, and perhaps you don't even know who this Jesus is, we're glad you're listening this morning. We're so glad you've joined us. Jesus is the answer. Take your eyes off of lesser hopes, things that will ultimately disappoint, things that will not last, things that will show themselves to be insufficient ultimately on that final day and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ who is for you, who loves you, who's paved the way so that you might have a relationship with him. If you would confess your sins, repent of them, he has made a way that you might have forgiveness, redemption, that you could be born again to a living hope. He has storehouses of grace for you this morning. 
It's not just a little temporary shot in the arm, a little five-hour energy, or just a stimulus package to get you through the rest of the month, but he gives you something that will last forever and ever and ever. He will actually cause you to become a wellspring of life so that living water might spill out of you into the lives of those around you, and that we have an eternal hope in Jesus And for all those who are trusting in Jesus this morning, we were once enemies. We were once strangers. We were once outside of God's family. But now we are trusting in Christ. We become his adopted children, brought into his family, and we're transformed by God. By his grace, we can be more and more, holy more and more, loving more and more, steadfast more and more, gentle more and more, bold and courageous and joyful and just and peaceful and patient and kind and self-controlled and eager and excited for his return. And so we are to set our hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, as we put our hopes where they truly belong, we will increasingly become like our Father in heaven. We'll increasingly be conformed to the image of Christ. And so holiness isn't being a stickler or a fuddy-duddy or a killjoy. It's not just about this list of things you do and you don't do. Rather, It's to grow our heart's capacity to truly delight in the things that are worth delighting in, that we might really be able to behold all that is praiseworthy in Christ, to experience the joy that will never disappoint, joys that can even withstand trials and suffering, the ones we're facing now and if things get much worse. We have a sure hope. We have sure footing in Jesus Christ. To disdain holiness is to work against all that God has for us. All the good that God has for us if we disdain holiness. And our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in this grace that is to be revealed at his second coming, there will be a day when it comes to an end. There will be a day where we will no more cry out, how long, O Lord? How long until all the injustice in our world is made right? How long until the pandemics come to an end? How long until things, evils like trafficking are abolished? How long until abortion will cease? How long until racism is no longer? How long until disease is banished? How long until brokenness both in my own heart and in the world is undone? There will be a day when God will answer the cries of, How long, O Lord, with it is finished. It has been accomplished. It is done. And in that day, we will shut our mouths and we will worship with hands raised, heads bowed, on our knees, and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and our heart's capacity to see glory will grow and grow for all eternity as we behold him face to face. But until that day, we get to be people who sing, 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would cause these truths to minister to our hearts and minds this morning so that we would indeed set our hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ with sober-mindedness, with preparation in our hearts, and that we would increasingly, by your grace, look more and more like your Son. And as we look more like your Son, that the world would see the beauty of Jesus in and through us and say, I want that hope. I want that hope. So make us fruitful and effective evangelists and missionaries to our neighborhoods and to the nations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.